the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. We are happy to be with you today. We are. It's a beautiful fall day in Pennsylvania. Yeah. We've had a lot of rain. Oh, the sunshine right now and is really shining. nice. And it's shining. The sun is out. Yeah. Skies are blue. It's a good thing. Yeah. I had a funny thing I was remembering today, and I just thought I'd share with our listeners. Um, I know I sometimes can come across on this podcast like just sort of always wise or, I don't know, a little over <laughs> over the top, insightful, loving. I, I just want to share like some of my human silliness so you can just know that i'm i'm not that person all the time we do get interesting comments about yeah. wendy's so wise oh, she's yeah, so insightful right. so yeah i think it's good for people to know some of the other yeah, aspects I'm of not, your person I'm not always that way i i this is gonna sound so silly but i just have to confess it several years ago i bought a a toilet paper roll holder that sits in our bathroom to hold extra rolls of toilet paper. And I got it for its function, but also I thought it kind of solved a problem in a nice looking way. And it was meant, according to my mind, to hold four rolls of toilet paper very nicely on hand. How many rolls? Just four. Uh -huh. It holds four. Uh -huh. okay. And then there's like a little post that they're sitting on and just a few inches of the post stick up above the fourth roll that's that's how you know you've you've filled it up because it looks full right um and did it come with a diagram it did it was there was a picture of it right there on the box with only four exactly. rolls are you sure that's, it was only four that's right it's okay. four rolls okay. so you know i i liked this item that i added to our lives and whenever i would fill it up i'd put it back up to the four rolls and i i noticed that sometimes christopher would fill it up and there would be five rolls on the tower and the fifth see i didn't roll, i didn't read the, the the instructions i didn't see the diagram well i didn't know why you were doing it exactly but the, it, that fifth roll sitting on top there just looked wrong to me it was instead of being like filled completely it was now like this weird thing sitting on top that looked wrong and i figured you must know that it's meant to have four rolls because when i fill it it only gets four rolls so there had to be some like plot or some reason that you were intentionally putting that extra roll on there to annoy me <laughs> which is ridiculous but this thought would occur to me how long how long were you it was over several years years that, yeah i mean i remember when we finally talked about it but i didn't know it was years yeah. That every time you filled it up, you put that fifth roll on there and it would just irritate me. I just think, why why does he have to do things like this? Why does he have to poke me by just making it wrong? What is he trying to say? That he resents doing a job so he has to do like extra on there just so he wouldn't have to do it again too soon? What is going on here? And it would just, oh, annoy me so much. I'm and I'm sorry. It's, right. it's okay because it's it's really silly and some of you listening are thinking oh yeah i get that that is so annoying and some of you are thinking what is wrong with that woman <laughs> what was her deal well when you finally told me well, what, we... what happened was like one day i i saw that fifth roll on there and praise god like the holy spirit just whispered to me he's just being helpful like there's no plot there's nothing else going on here like and I just looked at it and I just started to laugh like 
laugh at myself for just the stupidity of letting something little like that have some big meaning that it it didn't have. And I remember I I told you, I confessed to you how I had been being bugged by this fifth roll. Do you remember what you did that day just to kind of uh, I think me? I stacked like eight more on yeah, top or something to every, the ceiling. Every roll of paper <laughs> in the house and made this huge tower so that the next time I went in, I just saw this <laughs> enormous tower of toilet paper rolls. Oh, it made me laugh. It was so good. But just, I, I just share that. I think it was mostly my own thoughts but there is also just that factor of coming together and sharing our lives as a married couple gets into every little aspect every of our nook lives and, cranny. and the, there is the enemy of our marriage who wants to make big deals out of nothing mm-hmm. and even though i do think it's my mostly me i do also recognize that there was a grace from God that is he's after protecting our marriage and I I felt that grace come in that day when I looked at it and realized he's just being helpful there's no thank other you Lord thing for defending me <laughs> <laughs> thanks love for sharing that story yeah, sure. it's a good example of just the normal day-to-day stuff you deal with I'll just add that ever since then Christopher only fills the thing up with four rolls out of just love for me. So thank you. Nate. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what's been going on with the Institute. Well, we just finished up the TOB Congress, yes. which was online instead of being in Cleveland, as we were hoping it would have been. But it was great. It was um, as far as an online event can go. I thought it went really well. We had live elements and we had pre recorded elements. But mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to George Weigel's presentation. I mean, he he knows John Paul II uh, like few others on the planet, yeah. really, because of all the time he spent with them and getting to know him personally. So hearing his presentation was enlightening to me. Uh, it was good to reconnect with Scott Hahn. I hadn't uh, been in contact with him for a number of years, and I was able to um, throw out some initial questions to him on his live Q and a, and, and we, we both enjoy just touching base again after many years. Uh, and the feedback we've been getting has been really great. So many lives touched, so many hearts open. Uh, I also really appreciated sister Miriam James talk. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, some of the talks we, we, we offered at the Congress were a little bit more on the academic side. And I think our real charism at the Institute is that journey from the head to the heart Mm -hmm. and sister miriam's talk really helped with that so sister miriam if you're listening out there thank you so much and anybody out there who weren't if you were not able to participate this past weekend actually it would be two weekends ago once once you're listening to this um it's still available that's the good news so you can go to Mm tobcongress.com and learn how you can watch all those awesome presentations tobcongress.com and uh yeah, it was just overall a wonderful experience. Yeah. So thanks, everybody, who participated. Yes. Again, if you haven't participated and you want to, mm-hmm. uh, go to tobcongress.com. Yeah, that's great. Shall we start with a yeah, question? let's do it. Okay. Our first question is from Ivy. Hi, Ivy. She says, I just recently started listening to the podcast. It's fantastic. I'm really enjoying them and hoping to catch up with the latest ones. Truly grateful. God bless your work. Thanks, Ivy. That's a beautiful affirmation to receive. She says, I saw a post on Instagram 
which said that, according to the Catholic tradition, women aren't meant to wear trousers. Simply oh, because dear. it's masculine. It said they should only be wearing feminine clothes, oh, like dear. skirts and dresses. It said that because of modernism, people have embraced this clothing. But when jeans wear... I'm sorry, when jeans... <laughs> <laughs> When women wear clothes like jeans, it's suggestive, even if it was meant to be modest. Could you comment on this? Oh, dear. Um, yes, I can comment on this. Uh, let's just talk about Scotland. Scotland? Yes. <laughs> okay. Men wear kilts in Scotland, right? Okay. Why are we talking about that? Because different cultures have different expressions, mm -hmm. right? And... When we confuse an objective principle with a subjective application, uh, we will inevitably misunderstand things and cause trouble and havoc. So let's go back right to the New Testament where Paul says that women should not enter the church with their heads uncovered, right? So in his time, uh, the, the exposure of a woman's hair was inappropriate in public. Um, this is not the case today, right? There are different cultural applications of objective truths. The objective truth is we should be dressing in such a way that upholds and honors the dignity of both men and women, mm -hmm. right? But that is going to be applied differently based on custom and period of history and cultural setting and, and background. Uh, I'd, I'd urge Ivy uh, and all the listeners to read the section in John Paul II's Love and Responsibility on Modesty, mm. where he is very clear on the cult, different cultural applications. The principle, again, is to dress in such a way that the dignity of both sexes is upheld. But he brings up the example of uh, primitive peoples where uh, women often in primitive cultures are topless. Mm -hmm. And he tells the story of missionaries who would come into these situations and they would project their own cultural standards mm -hmm. onto this different culture and demand that the women cover their breasts. Well, he unfolds the story that in this particular culture, women started covering their breasts, and in covering their breasts, they realized they were drawing more attention to them. Wow. And so they started covering their breasts in such a way that they could excite more attention. And the moral of the story is, in this culture, the covering of the breast became something that elicited an, an immodesty that hadn't been there when the breasts were uncovered. Wow. So that is a case of projecting one cultural standard onto another culture. Mm -hmm. When we read things like, um, you know, in, in the olden days, women always wore skirts. Well, in what olden days, in what culture, mm -hmm. in what situation? And, and please explain what that has to do with our time today. Mm -hmm. We have different cultural standards. We are in a different situation. Um, the principle that is applicable in every time, in mm -hmm. every culture, in every place, is to dress and hold oneself in such a way that the dignity of both sexes is properly honored. How that gets applied in various cultures is going to be, it's going to be different. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also going to be 
complex and complicated, uh, and especially when you have a crossing of cultures, this culture crossing into this culture, saying that's immodest, that's immodest. Mm. Uh, modesty comes from the heart. It is a virtue of the human heart, and this means that a given piece of clothing in and of itself, you can't put a piece of clothing on a table and say, that's immodest, Well, because it's impossible for an inanimate object to be modest or immodest. Mm. The virtue of modesty only comes into play when we're talking about human beings and what's going on in their hearts. And John Paul II says, immodesty happens when one dresses or behaves in such a way with the explicit intention to arouse lust mm -hmm. in others. So could it be the case that women wear slacks uh, or jeans to arouse lust in men? It certainly could be. And in those cases, it's immodest. Could it be that a woman is wearing a dress in such a way to incite lust mm. in others? Yes, it could be. So you can't place the evaluation of modesty on the clothing itself. One mm -hmm. has to look at the motives of the heart. And I, I just sense in there something in the, the messaging, you know, about women's clothing, something of a little fearfulness um, and maybe... Uh, scrupulosity. Yes. There's some there's some inner dynamics it seems to reveal that just um, sort of a grasping at control over a situation we can't completely control, right. which is kind of how we're perceived by others and thinking somehow we can control by following these certain rules make sure especially god knows that we're on the good side right 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 <laughs> i i i mean that sounds a little accusatory i i'm i do mean it in a just a, a loving insight to say like god knows our hearts yes um and it's not wrong to wear skirts and dresses it's not wrong to wear jeans and pants um it's kind of a a wrong to maybe focus a little too much on that yes yes i think is our feeling and our sense of things yes i'll, I'll tell a funny story just because we need to be lighthearted mm -hmm. about these things mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> this was from my anthropology studies in my undergraduate work i think i've you've probably heard me tell these stories before Wendy. i have heard it yes. but for the sake of our listeners yes. um there was a missionary uh, again a cross-cultural situation, missionary going into a, a primitive culture. And uh, <laughs> he, he initially was accepting of the fact that women were topless, but there was the head of his order coming to evaluate the success of the mission right. at one point. So he got a little nervous and he, he handed out shirts for all the women to wear when the bishop or this, the head of the order, I don't know if he was a bishop, when he showed up. And uh, the women had put the shirts on, but they had also cut big circles out so that their breasts were, were still exposed, which which is is humorous. You know, this is a, a case of, of just crossing cultures, mm -hmm. and it's it's important to recognize there is nothing immodest about the human body itself, right? We should never blame the goodness of the body for our degradation of it or our lustful approach to it. Uh, we cover our bodies, and this is probably the, the most important principle in this conversation. We cover our bodies in a fallen world, not because they're bad, 
We cover our bodies in a fallen world because they're so good and we feel, or at least we should feel, an instinctive need to protect the goodness of the body from the degradation of lust. Dress in such a way, and more importantly, live from your heart in such a way that you, you understand and know the dignity of your body. And if you know that, that will, you'll be sending out like radar waves, mm -hmm. you know, to others that I know the dignity of my body and don't mess with it. And, and that is much more important than uh, whether you're wearing a dress or whether you're wearing jeans. Uh, we have a question from a listener named Alexis. Hi, Alexis. Um, and I'm just going to summarize what she was saying that she and her husband had been arguing about pornography and that he was trying to justify looking at pornography by saying that it's just voyeurism. And she's said to him that it's a false means of seeking intimacy, that he's directing his desire for intimacy towards pornography, and he's rejecting that. And she wants to know, what do you say about all that? Okay. Uh, well, let's, let's say a word about voyeurism. Okay. Um, it's interesting that he would try to justify his behavior by saying it's only voyeurism. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. As if, well, does that make it okay? What? Right. <laughs> uh, there's certainly something voyeuristic about pornography where you are uh, gawking at the nakedness of others and their sexual exposure. And you are doing so precisely because it incites something in you. Yes. It brings some delight. It brings some pleasure to you. And, and here I want to pose to this husband, is it ever justified to treat another person as a thing for your pleasure? We are right to want to be, and we are right to be attracted to the human body. We're made to be attracted to the human body. We're made to find the body beautiful, but we're not made to be used. And there's a big, big difference between appreciating the beauty of another person as someone made in the image and likeness of yes. God, honoring that beauty, being willing to sacrifice your very self to uphold and honor that beauty. There's a big difference between that and treating the beauty of another as a thing for your own self-gratification. Mm -hmm. And that's what voyeurism is. Someone else is exposed, you get to look, and in looking, you are treating that other as a thing. Our erotic inclination in a fallen world is very much geared in that direction. We experience a pool to treat other people as things. And the idea that I, I am called to struggle against that, to find another way to see and uphold the beauty of another person, is a significant challenge. And I look at my own resources and I say, okay, that might be some nice ideal, but how am I ever going to get there? I yeah. can't do it, so forget it. And then I start trying to justify, well, this is just the way I am. This is just the way men are. Mm. Uh, it's just voyeurism. It's just this. It's just that. Well, the just this and just that, that justification is, is really 
like cementing in your heart the inversion of erotic desire. Mm. And what do I mean by that? God created erotic desire to be the power to love in his image. The fallen reality, the fallen humanity that we all bear is the inversion of that call to love. Uh, instead of saying, this is my body given up for you, and that's the true nature of erotic desire in the male as God created it to be, yes. when that gets inverted, it becomes, that's your body and I'm taking it for me. And for a man to justify that attitude in his heart is to cement that inversion of erotic desire and in the process, he incapacitates him to, it, that incapacitates him to love his wife mm -hmm. and to love women in general. Uh, so the, the wife here, uh, Alexis, God bless you, you are very rightly, deeply concerned about your husband uh, living as a voyeur where he is training his mind and heart to see the female form as an object, as a thing for his own selfish pleasure. Mm -hmm. Because he can't just turn that off when he's with you. If that's what he's fostering, if that's what he's feeding, if that's the kind of desire that he's fostering and feeding, well, that will inevitably mean he's reducing his wife to an object for his selfish pleasure. Mm -hmm. And then we'll justify it because, well, she's my wife. Aren't I allowed to have sex with my wife? You're allowed to put it this way, you are called, you are invited. The human vocation is yeah. to love in the image of God. And don't call using your wife for your own pleasure love. Uh, I say this with profound compassion because I'm a fallen man too, and I know my own struggles. Mm -hmm. But we must plant our flag firmly, recognizing our weakness. We can't overcome this ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we do have a Savior who came into the world precisely to save us right here if we would but allow him in to save us here and stop justifying our voyeurism uh, and say, Jesus, I am in need. Teach me what it means to love. Yeah. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ came to save such as these. Uh, we, we are all in need of this salvation. Um, the wife had made the point that looking at pornography is a, is a how did she say it? A, a, a false means of seeking intimacy. Yes. So, so what we really desire, what I was saying about God giving us eros as the call to love, uh, love, authentic love, leads to authentic intimacy. And I love this word intimacy. We, we misuse it or we use it too often. It kind of gets watered down. We don't really know what it means. But if you look up the etymology of the word intimacy, mm -hmm. it's the superlative of your inmost, like your inmost inmost, mm. your, your innermost, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's it, intimus. It comes from the word intimus, and it's the superlative of your, your inner life. Yeah right? Your inmost inner life. Intimacy is saying, I welcome you in my inmost, mm -hmm. right? And, and we all desire to be seen and known and loved in our inmost. Mm -hmm. And when we are afraid of that, or there are blocks to that, or though that, that erotic longing that God gave us gets inverted. It's all, it, well, it already is inverted in us, but if we foster that inversion mm -hmm. uh, of, of eros, intimacy becomes really impossible. And then we still have these hungers and these yearnings that we will try to satisfy or feed in very disordered ways. So that's, that would be a right way of understanding 
pornography as a substitute for the intimacy for which we are really made. And you know what else you could call that? Voyeurism. Uh, so, so we're, we're it's kind of the same. Thing. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And I, it seems like the conversation has sort of been a way of avoiding the deeper question. Well, if we, if we argue a point and say, oh no, I'm not seeking intimacy. I'm just looking at things. Then we can avoid the deeper point, which is one of that hurts me as a wife. Yes. And he doesn't want to look at that. He doesn't want to admit that that's possible. Yes, yes. And so I think, you know, if we can just recognize, like, the the pain that's coming into the relationship and beg for, for grace, beg for doors to open to real sharing of hearts, um, pray for both the husband and the wife to experiencing experience that desire to love the inmost of the other yes, yes. and to have the Lord show the way, which is in some ways unique to that couple of really penetrating deeper into one another's interior. And that's scary for any couple, but that's our prayer for this couple that, that this is kind of a wall being thrown up in that process. And there are lots of walls that get thrown yeah, up in our marriages. Yeah. Um, yeah Alexis is in pain because yeah. she's, yearning for true intimacy right. and she realizes her husband is incapacitating himself to really enter right. into it and i want to hold out to this husband that real intimacy is possible it takes hard work as you and i know wendy mm -hmm. uh, we were just talking recently about uh fears in our history that have put up walls between us and made it difficult for us to really be sharing our inmost mm -hmm. and here we are almost 25 years into married life, and we want to grow in intimacy, but we know we have work to do there. We have, mm -hmm. to, we have to look at those walls. We have to look at those fears. Um, and I think that's what Alexis really wants to do. And I would hope that her husband really wants to do that too. Uh, I don't know that he does. I hope that he does. I can say this, in his inmost, he really does. But it seems uh, from what we're hearing of her husband, that he's not living from that inmost. He's stopped at the surface. Yeah. And that's what pornography is, right? Sexuality is an invitation into the inmost of another. And that's why it has to be guarded and protected, because you can't just expose the inmost of another to a public viewing, mm -hmm. because it becomes voyeurism. It becomes reducing the inmost of another to a thing for for someone's pleasure. Mm -hmm. It becomes turning the person into an object. So maybe we could just pray into this for Alexis and her husband mm -hmm. and for all couples out there who are struggling with intimacy. And guess what? That would be all couples. We struggle to be intimate because it's fearful. It goes right back to the effects of original sin. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Right there, we could say volume, we could write volumes about that fear. Um, but that's the block to intimacy, it's fear. Mm -hmm. The good news is that perfect love can cast out that fear. So Lord, we lift up to you Alexis and her husband, we lift up to you every couple yes. who's listening to us and recognizes that inheritance of fear. It's so uh, so scary to be truly naked. It's easy enough to be physically naked if we block our hearts and shut our hearts down, 
But it's so scary to be naked with our hearts, to really expose our hearts. Mm. So we ask, Lord, that your perfect love would show itself in, in this marriage, in Alexis's marriage, that would sh- this perfect love would show itself in her husband's heart and his eyes would be opened to the call mm-hmm. to true intimacy and the way would be opened for him to venture on that path. We pray that mercy would be, uh, would be poured out in super abundance mm. on all the most painful places of their hearts and that that mercy, like an oil that loosens up stiff muscles mm-hmm. would bring, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when your stiff muscles get loosened up? Um, suppleness. Supple, that is, yes, yeah, suppleness. That there would be a suppleness in their marriage that would allow them to open ever more deeply to the grace that can make them whole mm-hmm. and lead them on that path of true intimacy. Suppleness, that's a good word. Mm. Amen. Amen. Uh, we recently had um, a nice dinner together with a Presbyterian yes, minister and his wife. We did. And we're talking about some of the differences in our theology and some of the ways that we're the same. And some of our listeners have asked, what what really is the difference between Catholicism and Christianity in general? So um, can you speak to that? Wow. I could go in many, many directions, but I'm going to zoom in on one that is of particular importance mm-hmm. and particular um, application in terms of our ministry in the theology of the yeah. body. And it would be a sacramental worldview mm-hmm. or the lack thereof. Now, what do we mean by that? A sacramental worldview recognizes that the physical world is really a means by which the spiritual and the divine life is communicated to us. And this flows right out of the heart and principle of the incarnation. Catholicism takes the incarnation very, very seriously and has allowed over 2,000 years for the implications of a God-taking flesh to, to, to unfold. And when you allow the implications of a God-taking flesh to unfold, you run into various scandals that, that we find very difficult to accept. That, for example, baptism is not just a symbol. When, when the waters bathe that person and the baptismal formula is prayed, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. We, this is sacramental reality. We believe as Catholics that the water really and truly communicates, the physical stuff of the water mm-hmm. communicates divine life to the person baptized. Mm. It comes through the water. How? Through water. Because Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity, when he was plunged into the Jordan. It was like a reverse baptism. The waters didn't cleanse him. He cleansed the waters. He impregnated those waters with divine life. A sacramental worldview takes very, very seriously that the 
through the logic of the incarnation, the physical stuff of this world communicates the spiritual and the divine. The Protestant Reformation was and continues to be a distancing from that truth. You can see it played out in all kinds of ways, but one way in particular is art and architecture. When you go into a, a classic Catholic church, it's going to be ornate with art. It's going to be, it's going to fill up your senses, right? Catholicism is the religion of smells and bells. You're going to have stained glass windows. You're going to have beautiful architecture. You're going to have you're going to have statues, you're going to have incense. Mm -hmm. If you go into what you would consider a classic Protestant church, it's going to be quite stark. Uh, not that you won't find certain Protestant churches with stained glass windows or, or, or the like, but my point is this, the further you go in the logic of Protestantism, which is in its very nature a distancing from the body of Christ, which is the church, Mm. Right, the church is the body of Christ. Uh, I wish I wish Luther would have stayed. He had lots of very important things that we needed to learn from him, and we have to keep in mind that within a number of years, the Catholic Church agreed with, I believe, eighty-seven of the ninety-five theses that he had nailed to the door. So I wish Luther would have stayed. The Catholic Church lost when Luther left. Mm -hmm. I don't take objection to eighty-seven of his ninety-five objections. Mm -hmm. uh, but I take objection to the fact that he left the body. Mm -hmm. uh, the very act of leaving the church, which is the body of Christ, is a distancing from the reality of the body of Christ. And when you play that out logically over decades and centuries, it becomes more and more uh, disincarnate or excarnate, mm -hmm. if you will. And I, I think that's one very important difference between Catholicism and Protestantism is the sacramental worldview that takes very seriously, that unfolds, even when it's scandalous, unfolds the full implications of the incarnation. An interesting example, I met, we met a woman um, a few years ago who had um, been raised in a Christian Protestant um, denomination that really emphasized um, chastity. And she had gotten married to a man of that same background. And later, because of some pain in their marriage, became aware of John Paul's teaching, Theology of the Body. And she articulated that in her upbringing, in their upbringing, they'd learned very clearly how to say no to everything that their bodies were saying. Right. But when it came to marriage, they had no sense of anything good to say yes to. Yes, yes, yes. This just emptiness of they hadn't received the goodness of their bodies. They hadn't received the communication of God through the body. Yes, yes. And so the suffering in their marriage of feeling pain and shame over living a marriage because that was what they had received yes, in, yes. Their, in that worldview. So I, I thought it was just such a, a, it's very sad, but it's also enlightening of what, how could that matter? How yes, could it matter yes. if we understand the body communicates goodness and God's life and grace? Yeah, it comes from the mystery of the incarnation and taking that mystery very, 
very mm -hmm. seriously. I want to say this because this is important qualification over everything I, I said previously, mm -hmm. that uh, I'm not saying all Protestants believe this, mm -hmm. uh, nor am I saying all Catholics embrace a sacramental worldview. Um, we, we, we know plenty of Catholics who are moving in a kind of classic Protestant direction, mm -hmm. just as we know many Protestants who are moving in what you might call a classic Catholic direction, a sacramental worldview. Mm -hmm. So this is not a blanket statement that no. all Catholics embrace a sacramental right. worldview and all Protestants don't. But those who are faithful to the teachings of Catholicism will embrace a sacramental worldview, right. whereas those who carry out the logic of Protestant theology will find themselves more and more distanced from a sacramental worldview. I think that's a, a very important qualifier. Yes, that's very helpful. Well, as we come to the close of another episode, I'd like to invite our listeners out there. If you are blessed by what you are hearing, please, please hit that send button and share this episode with somebody you know who needs to hear it. If you are blessed by the work of the Theology of the Body Institute, would you please consider becoming a patron of this work. We'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, learn how to be a patron for as little as $5 a month supporting this mission. Uh, you'll get a lot of goodies and ongoing formation in the Theology of the Body. And we have some really exciting things coming on the horizon for our patrons. I will, I'm not at liberty to announce that just yet, but it's on the horizon. And I look forward to sharing more in the future. And remember, as always, our dear listeners, you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute, with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.